You're listening to On The Verge, a podcast about solving the security risks of the 21st century, produced by the Council on Strategic Risks. Tune in for expert interviews about some of today's most pressing existential problems, including climate change, global pandemics, bioweapons, and nuclear proliferation. We'll discuss some of the major challenges and outline potential solutions for preventing worst-case scenarios. At the Council on Strategic Risks, we believe that we are on the verge of a better tomorrow. Welcome to On the Verge, the podcast of the Council on Strategic Risks. I'm Christine Parthamore, the Chief Executive Officer of the Council, and I'm joined today by our senior fellow, Andy Weber, who is also formerly the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs. We're thrilled today to have Alexander Titus as our special guest. He's a strategic business executive at Google Cloud focused on the global public sector, as well as a senior fellow with CSR. He's worked across the public and private sectors and done unique work at the bio-AI intersection, and he's been a true leader in community building and public communication including regarding the promise of biotechnology for addressing some of the world's greatest challenges. So we're thrilled to have him here today. Specifically, we're going to talk about one of his really unique roles that he's had in his career. For the U.S. Department of Defense, he was the very first head of biotechnology in the office of the chief technology officer. So sort of a trailblazer of sorts at the Department of Defense and in a really neat position that we think is really important to addressing catastrophic biological risks to the nation and to the world. So we're very grateful to have you here today. Um, first, an opening question about part of your life, uh, not directly related to your work career, but that I think our listeners will find somewhat interesting to hear about. Beyond your work history that's been uh, amazing and trailblazing on your personal website, you share that among other accomplishments, you quit your job and traveled the world and rode your bike from the Arctic Circle to Silicon Valley. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, uh, I, well, it's great to be here. I appreciate it, Christine and Andy. Um, and I actually would argue that they're directly tied together. So when I, I, I have a reputation in my career and in my per- personal life of kind of doing things out of left field or it, you know from one field to the other, taking some calculated risks. One of many of those examples is when, um, when I after college I had traveled you know for about a, two or three weeks um, to Guatemala and really had loved it and. Then I moved to, to California, to Silicon Valley to get a you know job, a normal job and be a productive member of society. And about a year into that, I realized that there was a heck of a lot more than just you know like the 12 hour a day grind. And so that's when I quit my job the first time, bought a one-way ticket to Guatemala and said, we'll figure out what, what happens from there. And I spent a year wandering about, traveling, meeting wonderful people. Um, I actually met some great people on a bus in the middle of nowhere who said, you know, in about six weeks, we're going to Australia. You want to come with us? And so that I ended up, you know, I was going to live like, you know, the high life with a really good budget in Guatemala and ended up, you know, living out of the back of a Honda Civic in Australia, <laughs> which, was, <laughs> which was awesome. And that was a story that my my wife and I, my now wife, but with our first date, we started sharing stories about, you know, the things we've done, the travels we've done. And she said, I have this idea. We should ride our bikes from Alaska to Argentina. And I was like, sounds awesome. Where do I buy a bike? <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't owned a bike for about five years, but it, you know, bought a bike. We rode our bikes from Alaska to San Francisco when ultimately I said, you know, 
I'm, I'm done. I think I would like to go to grad school. And, but that kind of attitude of being like, well, sounds hard, sounds fun. Let's do it is exactly why I've, uh, the kind of reputation that's led me to a lot of the cool things in my career too. And so it's that personal passion and the kind of the big unknown meaty problems are something that I just absolutely love to tackle. Excellent. That That's really inspiring. And um, I'm personally very interested in considering applying this method to my own life <laughs> after this current job wraps up. That's fantastic advice. Thanks. And it eventually led you to the Department of Defense, where you were the first ever lead on biotechnology. Obviously, the department did work on biotech uh, and with biotechnology companies in the past, um, but you had a sort of first ever unique position. Can you tell us what that was and some of the types of things that you did? Yeah, so it so in 2018, the, the Department of Defense stood up modernization priorities when they did the big reorganization and the Undersecretary for Research and Engineering became an undersecretariat. And of those modernization priorities, they started out with eight and eventually um, the next year added a few more. And biotech happened to be one of them with recognition that it's a technology that is impacting every part of the world, both in security and in just like general day-to-day commerce and life and healthcare as, as we know. But it was, a, it was a good example, again, of those that reputation for being willing to tackle big unknown problems. So when I when I went in to, to talk to the, the people that I was going to be working for, they said, we'd like you to help us lead biotech modernization. And I said, well, it sounds fascinating. What do you mean by biotech? And they said, that's why we want you to help us. We don't, <laughs> that's a, we don't know. And I said, well, then what's modern? And they said, again, your problem. You want the job? Um, and I, of course, couldn't turn that down. I mean, the, the, so the, the role is essentially thinking of kind of what is the long-term strategy roadmap for how to get there. And so working within Undersecretary of Research and Engineering or the, the CTO of the department, working within that and alongside peers who are in other technology areas that you might have otherwise expected. So hypersonics, autonomy, AI, it was the first time that biotech had been put in the same list as those types of technologies for priority. And I mean, that was a recognition, like I said, of the importance. And I absolutely couldn't say no to the opportunity to, to help lead in that. And that's where, of course, where I met Andy and that's where I met you um, after that role. It's, you know, and I think I benefited from not coming from a, I didn't have a, a training background in biodefense or biosecurity. So again, that kind of cross field I was a technologist by training. And so when I came in and started looking at biotech from a purely technology lens rather than a biodefense or biosecurity lens, of course, that's paramount to consider in the whole conversation. But it was a new angle, or it was, it was, it was a, the less common angle to look at the technology, if you will. Because then you know I started talking about how the opportunities are immense, and then some of the opportunities are you know, preventing catastrophic risk and keeping us safe. But when we started talking about it from the, you know, new material and new mRNA-based vaccines and all of the different things we could do with it, it, it started to change the conversation. And I like to describe my job as bringing the green goo to the zoom and boom people of the department. <laughs> because there's, you know, <laughs> weapon systems are very, uh, 
right? There's, there's a common way you think about a weapon system at the Department of Defense. And when you walk in and say, hey, let's talk about biology, everyone thinks in their head, jello, basically a block of green goop. <laughs> That's what biology is. Um, and so it was changing that paradigm, or at least trying to, that I got to spend most of my time doing. That's fantastic. And I hope some of that shift carries across multiple different issues that are clearly confronting the nation uh, in the 21st century. So that's fabulous. Uh, do you have any specific accomplishments that you're proud of that you can speak about publicly? Yeah, actually. So a lot of my work was, um, you know, lots of it's FOUO, so you can't, but a lot of it was, most of it was unclassified. So I got to work with a team of amazing people who really helped push forward um, the department's investment in biomanufacturing. And so what has now become um, Biomade, which is one of the manufacturing institutes out of Manufacturing USA, that is a big initiative that my team really helped champion and worked very closely with the team that runs the, the Manufacturing USA office within DOD. And that was the reason we were so excited about that is because the ability to manufacture um, anything in the life sciences is challenging. And we haven't had nearly as much investment as we have in other kind of more traditional manufacturing processes that are, you know, electronics and mechanical engineering based. And so being able to bring that to the forefront of there's, I think there's currently 15 or 16 manufacturing institutes and being able to add, a, and actually was the third of the life sciences focused ones, but it's kind of the third leg of the stool because there was Nimble, which is focused on biopharmaceuticals. There's Army ARMI, which is focused on bio um, regenerative manufacturing. So tissues and organs. And then BioMade is now focused on the industrial side of biology. Um, and so that was a $180 million public-private partnership somewhere in that range um, between investments from the DOD and um, private sector cost share. So that was, that was one of the big things. And it was awarded after I had left the department, but one of the big things that we had been working on to get it going underway while I was there. That's fantastic. Uh, again, what a great leap forward. Um, so I, I recall uh, in the years prior to this, when I was at the Department of Defense, um, similar cultural shifts that had not yet occurred uh, in thinking about bio, uh, bio defense uh, and how you, can, how you pursue it, um, but also how you work with international counterparts and how you scope the problem and all these sorts of things. And uh, Andy and I regularly joke that year after year, we would hear, you know, in requests for thinking of real-time biosurveillance uh, and early warning of biological threats, for example, we would get regular lectures of don't call it, don't call it real-time, that's not possible. <laughs> and just the need and how hard it could be sometimes just to get people to think really forward when the private sector was, was really moving at that pace um, could be really difficult. So. Um, I think this is a really exciting development for the department. Um, and I'm curious, Andy, if you had had somebody like this in the department um, that you could collaborate with back when you were assistant secretary, how would you have leveraged that? Well, first of all, Alexander's one of my heroes because uh, he's a doer. He, he didn't just talk to his wife about getting bicycles. He got the bicycles and they, <laughs> they rode halfway across the world. So, uh, and he did the same thing at the Department of Defense. Yeah, I was focused on biosecurity and biodefense in, in my career, um, and there was nobody to turn to. You know, we had this new thing that everybody was talking about, synthetic biology. What is it? Will it change the threat landscape? There was some work on, you know, what are the risks of this new technology in terms of bioweapons threats and, and uh, potential pandemics, et cetera. But there was nobody to turn to to say, how do we leverage this revolution in technology? You know, it's as if 
like we're in 1995 and there's this thing called the internet and we're talking about it in the halls of the Pentagon, but there was nobody to turn to to say, okay, well, what does this mean? And how can we jump on the promise of that new technology in order to enable uh, our mission, and which was very focused on protecting uh, our armed force members and our nation from the whole range of biological threats. But Alexander made it much broader and uh, by focusing on manufacturing and the industrial applications of, of biotechnology. And the Department of Defense is an amazing organization. You know, people think that all they do is, is buy weapon systems and things that blow up, but uh, you name it, across the board, battery technology, energy uh, technologies, there are so many things that DOD affects and, and can be an early adopter and, and really influence the entire uh, civilian economy in the United States. Just to clarify as well, uh, for the Department of Defense on the countering biological weapons side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, not not developing them. <laughs> because we haven't had an offensive biological weapons program since President Nixon killed it in 1969, we don't have that sort of in-house expertise to, to appreciate what's possible in terms of leveraging technology for defensive purposes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and hopefully that's really changing, including in events after um, and inspired by the position that was created that you first held there, I mean, especially getting into manufacturing and things like that. It's again, fantastic trend. Is there anything that you're most excited about or that you'd be most interested in seeing the department after you've left it do next with, with these types of positions? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the One of the things that I found in my role that I spent, I mean, 100% of my job essentially was communications. So you're, you're, you made a comment when you're in your intro about comms and kind of science communications. I you know because I came in, I was an outsider to the biosecurity community. I was an outsider to the defense community. All of a sudden I was talking about biology in a different context than, than a lot of people were familiar with. And so it was one part making sure that I was communicating, you know, effectively and not not miscommunicating any of the fields that I was not an expert in. So, you know, everything that Andy was representing, I wanted to make sure that I didn't alienate anyone by saying something that was not true, but at the same time, pushing the limits of how people thought about these technologies, both from the practitioners from the biodefense world and the practitioners from the, the rest of the defense world. And then it was being a bridge between, you know, the brilliant scientists doing amazing things and the people who care about what we can do with the technology. How do we build new clothes, new materials, new runways, new roads, and the people who really fundamentally understand that the nuance. And, and oftentimes, you know, I'm a scientist by training. So oftentimes you want to talk about the, the details and how cool and intricate something is. But when, when senior leaders um, anywhere at the Pentagon or anywhere else need to hear a technology, those details are a lot, it's like, you know, focusing on the trees and not the forest and those, that translation, that kind of panning out from a root system all the way out to an ecosystem level view of a technology is challenging. So I would hope that more and more of those types of roles uh, would be built out for, for biotech, for other technology areas, because that translation and that communication is hard. And oftentimes that happens in kind of a network-based environment as well. So actually one of the first times I ever met Andy, we're having a beer in Crystal City, and that's where we came up with the idea of biotech burgers and brews. How do we get people together 
to think about biotech in a setting where we could just talk about cool ideas without thinking about how it fits into a, a slide deck or how it fits into a acquisition program and how it, you know, or how it fits into an academic paper. We just wanted to talk about cool biology. And I always ordered the impossible burger because I needed to make sure I supported the <laughs> biotech industry in the middle of these conversations. And so bringing those kinds of networks and those kinds of ways to communicate a little bit differently is really important, in which I spend a lot of my time doing now as well. But I, I would hope that the department starts to have more and more of those translators who can bridge that gap between what it means operationally and what it means scientifically, because I think that goes a long way to demystifying these emerging technologies that we want to think about. Incredibly important. Thanks. And uh, in some of our past discussions, I think you've recommended that perhaps all the agencies uh, across the U.S. government that have a hand in potentially leveraging biotechnology and advances in the field maybe should have a position like that. And then you could all help network among each other and facilitate this for the cross-agency cooperation as well. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that idea? Yeah, it's, it's, so it's very similar to that communication I was just talking about. And it also really applies to technologies that are horizontally applicable. So you think about how HHS would use biotech to have you know, the next generation of vaccines, to how the DOD might care about biotech for um, you know, the next generation of materials, to how NIH cares about biotech for how we can more fundamentally understand the nature of biology and cellular dynamics and things like that. But the, the challenge is they're often those those deep understandings are siloed in some component, even within their own organization, and they don't talk to each other, which is why B3, the Biotech Burgers and Brews, was so cool, because we got to finally talk to each other a lot more outside of any formal setting. But having a, a role of that translator who also has the ability to communicate and, and the actual access to communicate to senior leadership. So I was the, you know, I was one of 10 people that held my representative role for a technology. And we all had the ability to, on a regular basis to directly communicate with our undersecretary and deputy undersecretary and assistant secretary level people because we could have that one-on-one that -on -one communication. They trusted us in our input. Um, and oftentimes, you know, we have a long history of having physicists advising senior leadership in the government, particularly in security, but we don't as often have the biotech. We, biotechnology is relatively new. We definitely have had some on the biosecurity front, particularly now in the midst of a global pandemic, but that biotech and having, you know, ASPR and, or ASH at, you know, Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response or Health at HHS or whoever might be the new director of the NIH or DARPA or whoever it is, having that role of translator with the ability to communicate and the, have the ear of those leaders in those departments go a long way because it's really hard when those leaders are so busy to be able to then stop and think long-term about how one specific technology can happen across so many different areas. And that's why it was such a unique experience for myself and my peers in those roles is we were designed, the role was designed and carved out to be able to do that. Um, but I didn't have the ability there wasn't an analog in the other agencies, and I think it would have been immensely helpful. I think it's really important to have that. You know, just like every agency or large company has a chief information officer, 
every agency or large company that's in this space should have a chief biotechnology officer. It just makes sense. And, but at a very senior level, reporting to the CEO or the or the secretary in order to have that ability to span the entire um, range of work that that company or government agency is doing. Yeah, and it it's a stark difference between when you struggle really hard to communicate up the chain somewhere and having the ability to say, look, Mr. or Mrs. Madam Undersecretary, like this is important. We need to think about this and having time to sit down and say, all right, well, let's dig into why. And why is that the case? How do we figure out what we want to do about it? And then how do we act on it? That was the other thing. The support to take action, to stand up programs that were going to you know, meaningfully change or at least hopefully um, shift the way that a technology is going within an agency is a unique experience that I think we need to have more roles in, in that capacity. We need to figure out how to clone Alexander Titus's. That's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think Another? it's more we need to have a constant lookout for people who are, that's the other thing about, we're going to digress a little bit, but the ability to go in and out of government and rotate between industry and government service is not easy. And those of us like myself who would love to have a career where, you know, a few years really deep in the industry side, then a few years to bring that industry knowledge and that passion for public service into the, the government service side, that mechanism is, I mean, of course there's some, but it's still not as easy as, as many people would like it to be. I think we'd have a lot more free flowing back and forth if we had more mechanisms to do that. That's a whole nother can of worms. Um, but long story short, I think there are plenty of people who are far more competent and capable of me who would also love to serve in, in government more often. Yes, away from cloning, just building, again, more cadres of people with similar skills, uh, which is very doable, um, even if they're not an exact clone of you, which as good as that, as that would be as well. <laughs> but if any great. field's going to figure out how to clone people, it's going to be ours, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's true. Uh, yeah, and so it's... Um, I think that's a really important point as well. In one of our um, briefers on the Department of Energy's role in this um, that we wrote with uh, Chris Fall, who has had a science there recently, and Yang V. Lim, one of our colleagues at CSR, we recommended a biosecurity reserve corps attached to the national labs that, especially in times of crisis, if there's an emerging infectious disease and you really need skilled people just attacking the problem right at its source before it grows to a larger outbreak or pandemic, um, that that could be sort of a ready way for people to flow back and forth and have more relationships across the public and private sectors and sort of serve other functions like that. So we're definitely continuing to explore ideas like that that we'll keep promoting. Yeah, I think that's great. We, we often, and I, I do this too, we often say that government needs better mechanisms for this, but it goes both ways because most industry does not right now have a well-known, at least civic leave policy if you do. So you have to quit your job, change your career, whatever it happens to be. And so it's not just on government. Government needs to be interested in accepting people, but industry also needs to be interested in sending people and that back and forth. And then the, the, you know, the opposite too, where people who are career in government spend some time in industry to get a different perspective. So it's not just a one-way criticism or suggestion to the government, right? We all have to get our acts together to make that free flow of human capital more efficient. Absolutely. Definitely. Any other questions, Andy or Alexander, things that you want to touch on? One of the things that, so we've talked about communication. One of the things that I really found when I was at the DOD is uh, 
where we as scientists are trained to communicate in a very specific way versus people in you know business leaders or operators in, in any agency communicate in a different way. So I think that there's there's a huge need for more of that communication, that back and forth. Like after I left the, the department, I launched Bioeconomy XYZ specifically for that. The way that, that CSR writes briefers for energy or for state or whoever it is, it's a, it's a nice way to communicate. And I think we need a lot more, I don't want to say the word practice, but venues for people to be able to do so. Because I think I've also found through Bioeconomy XYZ that there's a lot of people who are excited, similar to people who are excited to go into government for a stint. There's a lot of people who want to communicate, want to write. You know, there's a lot of scientists with pent up creative energy because science is not historically thought of as a creative pursuit. So um, my whole perspective was opened up through the process of trying to walk that line between technology and communication. Um, and I think that's a fundamental barrier and one of our biggest opportunities for moving any field forward is being more effective at doing that. Absolutely. Well, I, I look forward to uh, seeing all of you at the next uh, Bruce Burgers and Biotechnology event. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think that'd be So great. we can talk about this in, in, in a very appropriate setting with Impossible <laughs> yeah. Burgers. <laughs> Impossible, beer, Impossible Burgers and Oregon IPAs. I'm from Oregon. So I, I'm like, <laughs> you know, if there were, I'm pretty sure someone did some kind of synthetic biology cloning of hops into my DNA way back when. Um, so when you have Impossible Virginia, Burgers and beer. Virginia IPAs are, are better than Oregon IPAs, but we can discuss oh. that further. <laughs> <laughs> this is a debate for a beer. That, that sounds like a topic for a whole nother podcast, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we need to get uh, the next bio burgers and brews uh, on the on the calendar uh, and hopefully see everybody in person again soon once it's safe. Um, so yeah, with that, thank you so much for joining us today. For CSR, we're uh, finalizing a, a roadmap for how to uh, how the nation can be much more ambitious on leveraging emerging technologies and existing technologies to much more aggressively address biological threats, no matter their source. So. We'll definitely be incorporating some of these ideas that you shared into that uh, work that we do and continue promoting them. And again, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We look forward yeah, to seeing you soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to On The Verge. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. For more information on the work of the Council on Strategic Risks, please visit us at councilonstrategicrisks.org or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn.